Some of those who wrote some of the uh, most amazing accounts of worship or some of the greatest songs of worship, then making them feel good doesn't really seem to have entered the frame. I think of David, for example. I preached through uh, 1 Samuel uh, earlier this year. And you'll know, if you're familiar with the book, that towards the end of 1 Samuel, David is being harried through the wilderness by Saul. Uh, And if you uh, cross-reference that period to the book of Psalms, you'll find some of the most amazing Psalms of the 150 were written during that precise period. David was far from feeling happy or content with life, and yet he waxes lyrical in praise and worship to his God. Think of Jeremiah. Is there a character in the whole of Scripture whose life seems to be nothing more than a litany of outward misery and suffering? And yet when you read the book of Jeremiah, when you read Lamentations, uh, your mind can be captured by the vision he has of his God as he writes praise to him. And then, of course, there's Paul in the New Testament. Think about Paul. Think of what he writes in 2 Corinthians, the account there of all the suffering and agony that he goes through, physical and mental, in his ministry. And yet there are some glorious notes of praise in that work, and he's even able to say all of this is but a light momentary affliction compared to the great glory that is to come. And it's a reminder to us that worship is ultimately focused not on us, but on God. Worship, whatever style we approve of, however we think of worship in terms of how it makes us feel good or not good, Biblical worship is ultimately focused upon God and ascribes to Him the things that He's done and that which He is. Which is why I want to look at the doxology this morning in the book of Jude because this is an amazing example of Christian worship. A doxology, a statement about God addressed to God, couched in a way that ascribes great things to him. Not to be confused, as it sometimes is, with a benediction. The end of the service, uh, no doubt Dale will give a benediction. He will bless the congregation in the name of God. That's not a doxology. Direction of a benediction is from God to us. A doxology is from us to God as we ascribe great things to him. And it's a wonderful way for the letter of Jude to end, because if you were to do a sort of crude a quantitative analysis of the book of Jude and add up all the words, you'd find that most of the words in the book of Jude are focused on what we might call negatives. Jude is writing to a church. We don't know which church it is. The identity of the church is clearly not significant for us. But he starts off by saying that he wants to, to write to them about the common faith that he and the believers there have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he can't do that. And it emerges, as we work through the the short letter, that it emerges that a number of false teachers, we don't know what they were teaching, but we do know their teaching was was not up to snuff, a number of false teachers have uh, entered this church and have been leading some of the people astray. So Jude has to focus his attention on that. And that gives the, uh, the impression for many who just casually read the letter, I think, that it's really, it's a polemical letter that's really quite negative in tone. But it isn't really. It begins with Jude wanting to talk about this common faith that he has with these people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it ends with him 
giving them this great encouraging doxology. It's a letter, if you like, that contains a lot of tough stuff in the middle, but is framed by this wonderfully positive attitude to the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately before the doxology, and this is why I started the reading a little bit earlier, uh, Jude has moved on from his sort of polemic against the, uh, the uh, false teachers and has given the church a series of, of pieces of advice or commands as to what they're, do, what they're to do. He says that there, verse 17, if you look at it, they're to remember uh, the words of the apostles. That's the first thing they're to do. They're to remember the words of the apostles. Then he talks in verse 21 of they're to keep themselves in the love of God. Building them up, he says, verse 20, in the, in the Holy Spirit. He talks about them praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20. Verse 21, he encourages them to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So he's giving these tremendously, in some ways, encouraging imperatives, commands that these people should be engaged in. And then in the last couple of verses there, 22 and 23, I think there's this, there's this lovely touch, a lovely pastoral touch. He talks, first of all, about having mercy upon those who doubt. And it's almost as if his mind at this point goes to the congregation and the impact that the false teachers are having. And he knows that there are some in this congregation who are very young in their faith. And they've been led astray by these false teachers, not because they're bad people, not these young people, these young people in the faith, they're not bad people, they're just young in the faith, they don't know any better. And he urges the people he's writing to to be merciful towards them. Don't go in with a flamethrower and sort of annihilate them for being led astray by these false teachers. Treat them with mercy and gentleness. There are others, he says, uh, that should be uh, verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And I think here he's thinking perhaps of those members of the congregation who perhaps should have known better. Perhaps they had been you know, around longer, they'd been better taught, they should have known better, they shouldn't have been taken in by these false teachers. But again he says, don't go in there with the, sort of the baseball bats and start knocking seven bells out of them. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Be driven by love towards these people who've been misled in order to try to save them from the fire. And then finally, he says, uh, to others, show mercy with fear, hating the garments even stained by the flesh. And that, I think, there, he's, he's thinking probably about the false teachers themselves. He's talking about, you've got to be very careful with these people. You might get contaminated by them. The language there is very, very strong. We might say a garment stained by excrement, perhaps, would capture the burden of what's being said here. Well, these people are dangerous. Be careful how you handle them. But notice, they're still to be handled with mercy. The motive for dealing with these people is not to crush them. It's not to score points off them. It's to win them back. And that's all great stuff, isn't it? When you think about it. But it's also a very tall order. I don't know if you ever read uh, Christian biographies. Uh, uh, you know, it's a good thing to read Christian biographies and to learn from those who've gone before. And typically, Christian biographies are written, you know, it's a sort of truism, they're written about interesting people rather than boring people. 
You know, you're not going to read a Christian biography of the guy who was, you know, a CPA and just went to church faithfully every Sunday and was a good Christian in his neighborhood and then he died. That's not going to sell any books. Typically, we read Christian biographies about those who've done something outstanding. William Carey would be an obvious example. And at times when we read these books, they can be very helpful. It's, it's great to read and be encouraged about what the Lord has done through people in times past. But it can also be discouraging as well, can't it? Because sometimes you read these books and, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're never going to be William Carey. We're never going to be that guy or that girl that the book was written about because they did spectacular things that we're never going to do. And it can be kind of backbreaking. And I think that's the case when we come to passages in Scripture where we're being told to do things. On one hand, that's a great vision for the church, isn't it? Building each other up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, dealing appropriately with those who are being led astray or those who are leading people astray. It's easy to write about. It's hard to deliver in reality. Even when life is good, these things can be hard. What about the 80% of the time when life is less than ideal? How are you going to handle it then? Well, that's why it's great that this letter does not end there. The letter ends with this great doxology, drawing the people's eyes away from themselves and focusing them on the Lord God. I... One of my weaknesses in life, I, I love stick shift cars. I've got a little coupe that I drive, and there's nothing I like better than going somewhere, well, first of all, where there are no sort of police around, obviously, but you know, you, when you're going up a, a mountain on hairpin bends, and you're shooting up the mountain, and you feel the engine dropping away, so you drop a gear, and you feel that power surging back into the car and carrying you on up the hill. That's what Jude does at this point. Yes, you can see as, as, as these commands are being read out to these people, perhaps the engine's beginning to labor. Wow, well, this is great, but how are we going to do this? And then at the very end of the letter, Jude drops a gear and everything starts to pull away again. How does he do that? By focusing on the Lord. Let's look then in a little bit more detail at this doxology. Notice how it begins. Now to him who is able... Verse 24, that's a very important first move in the doxology. When you think about it, sometimes problems come up in life. Maybe a challenge arises at work and you have to have a meeting to address how to deal with the problem. And what's the first thing that a good manager asks when he's faced with a problem at work and he's got his team with him? I think the first thing a good manager asks is, okay, so what are we able to do here? What are the possibilities what can we do? If you go to buy, I mean, think you go into the shops, you go to buy a car or something, really the first question any sensible person is going to ask is, well, what am I able to afford? What am I able to do? Once you've discovered what you're able to do, then you can start thinking about what is desirable to do. But everything really depends upon first working out the range, the limits of the possibilities, the limits of your power. Well, here, Jude starts by reminding the people that God is able. God is powerful. And that's the first thing you want to hear 
after this list of commands that you've been given. Yeah, God has not just given you these commands, but he is able. He's able to do what? He is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling is a terrible thing. My lasting memory of, I would say grammar school, you would say high school, I guess. My lasting memory of high school is is when I was age 14. And I was playing in, in uh, what would, I, I guess, what would be called an intramural sports game. I was in the rugby team. And I played on the wing. I was not a big guy. You know, the, the forwards are big. They're huge. But rugby team, you've got two kinds of people. You've got the big guys up front. And then you've got the guys out to the sides who are fast. And I was one of the fast guys. And we're, my team is in a terrible position. We're right back against our own defensive line and the ball comes out and it's passed to me and I'm on the wing and I take off up the field and I move like a bolt of lightning as I get to the touch line at the far end I'm still pulling away from the people pursuing me the great thing about those big guys is they don't run very fast if you can get ahead of them they're never going to catch you I'm flying up the wing and I cross the touchline. And the thing you need to know about rugby is it's, it's not like American football in that to, to score, you've actually got to put the ball down. You have to be holding the ball as you put it down on the ground. I shoot across the touchline. There's nobody close. And I go to put the ball down and I stumble. And the ball flies out of my hands. 36 years on, I still remember that moment. It's burned in my consciousness. Maybe your kid, I see a lot of kids here today, that's great. Maybe you play soccer or hockey or something. Maybe you've had a, a similar experience. You know, you've got the ball of the puck and you're right up there and the goal is open and you trip. Or maybe somebody trips you up and it's all over and what could have been a great and a glorious moment becomes a total disaster. Stumbling is a terrible, terrible thing. It's a way, if you like, of snatching Defeat from the jaws of victory, so often. Stumbling is mentioned a lot in the Bible in those kind of contexts as well. Psalm 73, the psalmist says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can imagine the scene, can't you? The, the psalmist, he's, he's got a tough life. He's poor. Maybe he's not well. He's been a faithful, faithful servant of the Lord. But life's hard. And he looks around and he sees these slimy people who care nothing for the Lord. And everything's just great in their lives. They're wealthy. They've got all the money they need. They've got a perfect family. Everything goes well for them. And as the psalmist thinks on this, Something sinister happens. He nearly stumbles. He nearly starts to question whether God is truly good. His faith is nearly shipwrecked at this point. Psalm 116, verse 8. The psalmist thanks the Lord for doing things for him. He says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Stumbling is one of the the favored ways that the Bible talks about how people screw up their spiritual lives. It's a powerful one. And when Jude is writing to this church, 
He's concerned. I mean, there's always a general concern about Christians stumbling. We always worry about uh, brothers and sisters and ourselves stumbling, but there's probably specific concerns here as well because he knows the church is sort of in the thrall to these false teachers. And Jude is worrying that, worried that these people will stumble, that their faith will be shipwrecked. And that's, a, that's an important concern. The history of the church is littered with the names of people who stumbled and ended up as bywords for disaster. I was talking with my wife recently about somebody we knew and were relatively close to and has just ended up as a moral disaster. After years of faithful Christian testimony, his entire Christian testimony has been destroyed because he stumbled. And now he'll never be anything more than the, the punchline to a bad joke. Stumbling is a terrible, terrible thing. And yet, isn't this glorious what is said here? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Yes, we should worry about stumbling. It's the way faith gets shipwrecked. It's the way testimonies get destroyed. It's the way the church gets damaged and tarnished, often in the public eye. But we have a God who is able to do what? To keep us from stumbling. God has given us many means for that. Think about it. There are outward means. The preaching of the Word. We're going to have the Lord's Supper later on, have the Gospel sealed on our hearts by the Supper of the Lord. We can read our Bibles for ourselves now in a way that would have been unknown. 200, 300 years ago, most of church history, people would not have owned a Bible and would not have been able to read it for themselves. How great is it to live in an era where we each own our own Bibles and we can read them for ourselves? Friends. Isn't friendship a great thing? Not only do we have our church, but we have our friends within church who can encourage us and at times challenge us. I'm very blessed at Cornerstone to have five men on session with me, any one of whom, and I know this because at least one of them has done it, wouldn't hesitate to phone me up and tear me off a strip if they think that I'm in danger of stumbling. It's good to have friends, Martin Luther in the Reformation, and perhaps this sort of jars a bit on Protestant ears, but Martin Luther said in 1522, I will allow no man to take private confession from me. And maybe we're thinking, oh, wow, that sounds a bit Roman Catholic. But what Luther was talking about was he liked to have a confessor so that he could go and tell this man about the deepest, darkest areas of his life and receive counsel and, when necessary, rebuke and encouragement to stop him from stumbling. So the Lord gives us all kinds of external things to stop us from stumbling. But more wonderfully than that, he gives us internal means as well. Preaching of the word can't do it by itself. But those who are identified with Christ by faith are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will take that word week by week and slowly but surely transform you and strengthen you, keep you on the straight and narrow. The Holy Spirit molds and shapes our minds and our lives more and more. I was saying yesterday in the retreat, uh, you know, I, I know a couple of languages. 
I cannot remember sitting in any class to learn those languages. I know I did because I know the languages. It's like preaching. Don't worry if you don't remember the sermons from six months ago. Don't worry if you don't remember the sermons from six weeks ago. As the word is preached, the Holy Spirit takes that word and uses it to transform your hearts and your minds and keep you from stumbling. Keep you from stumbling. And this has a goal. The Lord's goal is not just to keep you from stumbling. He has a long-range purpose here. God's power has a long-range goal. Look, to present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy. That's encouraging at first glance, and this is not the only place in the New Testament where this is mentioned. Ephesians 1.4, Philippians 2.15, Revelation 14.5, all talk about believers being presented before God. But a moment's reflection highlights both the difficulty and the amazing nature of this, doesn't it? What's the difficulty? Well, we know we're not blameless. If I could get access to your email account from the last seven days, would you be blameless? I know I wouldn't be. If I could get access to your email account for the last 24 hours, would you be blameless? We know that we are not blameless. Any person with any degree of self-knowledge or self-awareness knows that they're not even the person they would want to be, let alone the person that God requires that they be. So first of all, we know we aren't blameless. So how can it be that we will be presented before the presence of His glory with great joy? It's the central problem of humanity, isn't it? Biggest question facing any one of us is, how on earth can I stand before God? You can pretend that question doesn't exist. You can delay it for as long as you want, but... It is appointed for man once to die and then face judgment. I have a Bible cover in my, uh, my office at Westminster. Uh, it doesn't have a Bible attached to it anymore. Uh, it's beautiful gold lettering on the front. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a legend there and it says, uh, The Holy Bible, the secret of England's greatness. It's a magnificent piece of work. There's no Bible attached to it, so strictly speaking, I don't know the date. But I could date that Bible within 10 years. Only a nation at the height of its imperial arrogance would produce a Bible like that. Only a nation that was utterly convinced that God was that giant English gentleman in the sky would produce a Bible like that. Well, as Britain dominated the 19th century, so America dominated the 20th. How many people in America think of God as just that giant American in the sky? That's a dangerous thing to think because that is not how the New Testament describes God. The New Testament describes God as a consuming fire. He's not a giant American anymore. He was a giant Englishman 100 years ago. He is a consuming fire. And that makes this a problem, doesn't it? We are not blameless. How on earth can we stand before a consuming fire with great joy? My wife and I went to a, a glass-blowing place uh, when we were on holiday this year. And it's amazing. You can't get that close. When you're in the audience watching the glass, you have to sit way back because the fire is so intense. 
and the glass blowers all have this kind of red singed look to them. And the reason for that is their skin is just being burned all the time. They're working with consuming fires. And you can't get that close. They have these great long rods to melt the, the, uh, the uh, glass on because even as close as they work, they can't get that close. They work with consuming fires. How is it that we can stand blameless with joy before a consuming fire? Well, of course, the language itself points us to the solution. The language of blamelessness reminds us of what? Well, I know Leviticus is, is it anybody's favorite book in the Bible? If you've used those read-through-the-Bible systems, I, I have one. You know, your heart always falls a bit when you get to Leviticus because it's going to be a long death march through to the next good story. Leviticus is tough going, but it talks about the sacrifices. And what's one of the remarkable things about the sacrifices? Well, Leviticus 1.3 is a great example of this. The animal is to be without blemish. We might say the animal is to be blameless, perfect for the sacrifice. And that sends our minds, I think, going in two directions as we read this. First of all, of course, it points us to the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be blameless? Because the Bible teaches we will ultimately stand before God, not parading our own good works and righteousness before the Lord, but pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great sacrifice who took our blame upon himself so that we might stand before the Lord as if we are blameless. And in using this language of blamelessness, I think Jude does something very clever as well. He points to the quality of the Christian life. We almost get in a nutshell there what Paul expands in a whole letter in 2 Corinthians. We are to be like blameless sacrifices before the Lord. The Christian life is to be a sacrificial one, rooted in Christ, and we will ultimately be presented blameless and joyful before God because God is able to do it and has demonstrated both the willingness and the way to do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to a sort of a sidebar observation here on what Jude is doing. Notice that the foundation of praise and worship and the content of praise and worship are one and the same. How is Jude able to worship and praise God? Because God is able and has acted in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the content of what Jude is saying here? It's precisely that. It's ascribing to God that which he is, that which he desires, that which he has and will accomplish. It's not about making Jude feel good. It's about Jude declaring back to God all that God is and has done. And notice then as we come to the end, to the final verse, the sort of climactic moment of the doxology. Notice what Jude does. First of all, he says, to the only God. There's a lot of evidence in this letter that he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, using a lot of sort of Jewish extra-canonical literature. He's probably writing to a Jewish audience when he says to the one God, He's reminding them. This is connecting way back to the story of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. These people are rooted in the history of the people of God. But then he does something rather unusual for the New Testament. To the only God, our Savior. 
You look at the language of Savior in the New Testament, typically that's ascribed to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. Here, it appears to be God the Father who's being described as the Savior. Some years ago, uh, must be must be 15 years ago now, I was teaching the medieval class at Westminster, and a group of students were thinking of converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. So I wondered how to address this. I, well, I, I could sit around and talk about Eastern Orthodoxy for hours on end. Uh, a much more effective way would be to take them to an Eastern Orthodox service. There's nothing like standing up for two and a half hours for a liturgy in ancient Greek to make people think twice about the attractions of Eastern Orthodoxy. But we did this field trip, and the, the priest was very kind to us, and allowed us to be involved in this. We were in the sat in the service, and then gave an hour of his time afterwards to talk us, uh, to answer any questions we had. And then I took the students out for lunch, and I, I said to the students, "Okay, well, what did you like about the service? What was good? What could we learn from? And what was problematic? What was confusing? What do you think you'd want to distance yourself from?" And I remember them all being, all of them saying there was one thing that had really struck them, and that was the way the priest closed the service. He'd raised his arms to give the benediction, and he'd said, go in peace, for the Trinity has saved you. And they said it was a wonderful reminder that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all act to save. I think often as Christians, we're tempted, aren't we, to think about the sort of the system as working something like this. God the Father's really angry with us, uh, and God the Son comes along and says, Father, you know, if, if I go down and I'm obedient to the law and I die on the cross, would that be sufficient to persuade you to be gracious towards these people? You could be tempted to think of it that way. It's complete nonsense. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all will salvation. There is no distance between what the Father wills and the Son wills. They have one will. The Father, too, is Savior in terms of the great scheme of salvation. And here, Jude wonderfully ascribes to God the Father the title of Savior, reminding the people that God the Father, too, desires our salvation. He then goes on, he talks about Christ, of course. Christ is the one through whom we come to God the Father. And then he talks about God's, he ascribes to God glory and majesty. Glory. If you look up glory in the Bible, it's a term interchangeable with God himself. Uh, if, you, uh, if you attend Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, you'll know that every Third week, I use an example from the life of Napoleon in my sermons. I'm a huge Napoleon fan. Uh, and uh, we, were at a, we were somewhere recently and, uh, with a friend, and, and the person giving the lecture used a negative Napoleon story. And my friend turned to me and said, that's the first time I've heard Napoleon mentioned in a negative context for donkey's years. <laughs> Think about Napoleon. He was a great and glorious general. But he was not always a glorious general. One time he was just a corporal. And then he has this spectacular rise through the, uh, the military. He pulls off some spectacular victories on the battlefield. And he becomes a glorious general. And then in 1815, the British and the Prussians defeat him at the Battle of Waterloo. And he ceases to be a glorious general. For Napoleon to be Napoleon and for Napoleon to be glorious, two separable things. 
for God to be God and for God to be glorious, one and the same thing. Theologians call this the, the doctrine of divine simplicity. And sometimes, you know, as Christians, we find it, it's a bit of a sort of pointy-headed doctrine. You can't really see the point of it. The point of it is this. For God to be God and for God to be glorious are one and the same thing. He doesn't become glorious and then cease to be glorious. By the very fact of his existence as God, he's glorious. And goes on, majesty, uh, Judah ascribes majesty to God. Majesty, virtually a synonym for glory. For God to be God and for God to be majestic. One and the same thing. If you're thinking about God appropriately, you cannot think of him without thinking of him as glorious and majestic. Because that's part of who he is. Sorry, that's not part of who he is. That's actually a heretical statement. It is who he is. It's part of how we think about he should be. Power and dominion follow. Again, virtual synonyms for each other. What do we learn from that? To think about God is to think about him as sovereign and powerful. If you think about God in a way that is separable from thinking of him as sovereign and powerful, then you're not thinking about God in biblical terms. For God to be God and for God to be powerful and sovereign, same thing, same God. And that leads then to the application. So what's the application of this? Well, I think one of the applications is this is a great model of how to praise. What should praise and worship be? Ultimately, it should focus on the Lord. Notice the direction of uh, Jude's thinking here. He goes, if you like, from what God has done for us to what God is in himself. Praise should always move in that direction and terminate on God, not on ourselves or our own human psychology. And the second application is this, that final word, Amen. You can imagine as this letter's being read and initially there would have been that moment of encouragement. Yeah, he's going to talk to us about our common faith. And then there's that, ah, but I've got to talk to you about these false teachers. And then there's this long section about the false teachers. And you can imagine the hearts falling. And then you get the great call to persevere, as it's called in the heading in the ESV. These series of commands. And you can imagine, initially the heart starts to, to go up. This is inspiring. And then as you begin to reflect upon the reality, your heart begins to fall. And thinking, well, that's great, but how on earth are we going to pull it off? And then it ends with this tremendous doxology, reminding you of who God is and what he's done. And all the people at the end of that would have said, Amen. They would have owned this for themselves, that Jude's praise of his God becomes their praise of their God. And all the people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do praise you for you are sovereign and glorious. We ask your forgiveness that our thoughts are ultimately unworthy of you and incapable of grasping you as you really are. Yet we rejoice to know, Lord, that you are a God who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless with great joy before you. We ask, O oh Lord, this day that you would seal this word upon our hearts as we now gather to partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, you would make your gospel once again 
the most powerful and real thing in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come forward at this time. As we come to the Lord's table, uh, this is a sacrament that Christ has given to us because He...